following program is from the Latin Pulse archives, so some of the news items included are no longer current. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have pocketbook issues on our agenda, trade, economics, and their effects on the power politics of Latin America. And speaking of politics, we'll have a wide-ranging interview about free speech and the political climate as we look forward to elections in a number of countries in the hemisphere. But right away this week, to the issue that has business people globally paying attention, free trade agreements between the U.S. and two countries in Latin America. Vanessa Jesus-Gonzati is here with the details and this week's news highlights from around the region. The U.S. Congress passes a free trade agreement with South Korea, Colombia, and Panama. The House and the Senate approved the pact after about five years of negotiations. During the debate, a Democratic senator from Montana, Max Baucus, said the agreement would strengthen the U.S. economy, as well as ties with these three countries. By approving these agreements, we will also bind ourselves even more closely to three of our most important allies. And we will demonstrate to countries around the world that the United States is a good and dependable partner. The bills had been pushed back due to differences between the Bush and the Obama administrations. Many feared cheaper goods would make U.S. workers lose their jobs, and some were also concerned about worker rights safety in Colombia. The U.S. has free trade relations with 17 countries. The last one approved was with Peru in 2007. Venezuela's President Hugo Chavez announced this week that he will return to Cuba once again for his cancer treatment. He told the state network that he's going to get tested to follow up on his last and fourth course of chemotherapy done in Cuba last month. I must go back to Havana to spend many days because I have to have very rigorous exams done with scientific methods among the most advanced in the world thanks to Fidel, Raul in Cuba, and to Cuban medicine, as well as Venezuelan medicine, of course. Chavez underwent surgery in Cuba four months ago, and since then, he's been going back and forth to get treated on the island. He has yet to reveal what type of cancer he's battling, and the issue remains controversial. Last week, he vowed to win next year's presidential election and to govern Venezuela for another six years or more. Less Central Americans are crossing Mexico to reach the U.S., according to Mexico's immigration chief. Commissioner Salvador Beltran del Rio says the number of undocumented Central Americans has dropped from more than 400,000 in the past six years. He says that Central Americans crossing through Mexico face risks of extortions, kidnapping, and violence since organized crime moved into migrant trafficking. Last year, 72 migrants were killed on the border, and most of them were Central American. Bolivia's government is giving school teachers free laptops with an unusual detail that is generating criticism toward President Evo Morales. The image of a smiling Morales is on the back of each computer. Teacher union leader Jose Luis Alvarez says the image is promoting idolatry and that teachers will cover it. The government is handing out 
130,000 laptops worth more than $50 million. I'm Vanessa Jesus Gonzati reporting for Latin Pulse. As we just heard, free trade was the phrase of the week between Washington and Latin America. But recently, another phrase has been all too common, trade war. No, not with Latin America, but with China. While the U.S. Congress was working on trade bills, the U.S. Senate also passed a bill designed to pressure the Chinese to revalue their currency, the yuan. Supporters of the bill say the Chinese artificially depress the value of their currency to make their products cheaper and therefore create a trade imbalance. The bill must still pass the U.S. House before it has a chance to become law, but the Chinese reacted angrily anyway to the Senate's action. So what does a potential trade war between the U.S. and China have to do with Latin America? Perhaps everything. Our next guest, Lauren Paverman, can certainly put this in context for us. She's a research associate at the Council on Hemispheric Affairs here in Washington, D.C., and she's the author of a new article about China's growing economic connections to Venezuela and Latin America. Lauren Paverman, welcome to Latin Pulse. So to start, has China already outflanked the U.S. by increasing its economic ties to Venezuela? Hi, Professor Rockwell. Thank you very much for having me. Um, well, China is certainly becoming a growing power and uh, having growing influence in Latin America. Um, it has several trade, uh, free trade agreements with uh, several Latin American countries, uh, namely Chile, Peru, and Costa Rica. And the growing need in China for energy, food, um, minerals, are, these are all products that Latin American countries produce. And China's growing need for such products has helped bolster the economies of Latin American countries. And what this means is that the United States is now becoming less and less significant um, than it has been in past years in terms of economic ties. Uh, China has, for example, um, petroleum consumption is growing 7.5% uh, per year. And a country like Venezuela, who now has the largest oil reserves in the world, um, has looked to China to alleviate uh, some of the stress that it has incurred because of the uh, financial recession in the United States. Venezuela exports 43% of its oil to Latin, uh, sorry, to the United States, and um, it has been looking for a way to decrease that dependence, and has looked to China. Well, well, let's talk about that. Um, the Chavez administration is very worried about its dependence because the U.S. is its number one customer. So, um, is there anything from the U.S. point of view that we need to worry about with this new relationship with China? Or is it strictly a business deal? Um, for now, China's motives seem to be purely economically driven. Um, they have not stated any sort of explicit uh, strategic goal with um, strengthening their economic ties with Latin America, namely Venezuela. Um, of course, the U.S. has many sources, um, energy sources in the Middle East, um, where it can continue to get the oil and energy that it needs. Um, so really, it's more beneficial for Venezuela than it is um, something that the U.S. has to worry about. So no concerns that um, a large communist power is involved with um, someone who likes to use fairly heated rhetoric against the United States. Is this, is this also a political consideration in any way? Or is it merely um, 
Hugo Chavez, who happens to have various friends in various international locations. He's been very welcoming to the Iranians. Um, before he was more or less deposed, he was friendly with Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. So is this just another example of him trying to take an independent path away from the United States? Well, it certainly is symbolic in that sense. Um, and China is attractive to Venezuela for two reasons. One being that, unlike the United States, China has not, as I said before, explicitly um, stated any ideological stance that it's trying to push. Um, their motives are purely economic. And the other part is, of course, um, their gargantuan energy demands. And so both of those things are very attractive to Chavez. And um, the the fact that China has, di- um, I'm sorry, China has economic ties with countries that maintain diplomatic relations with tai- Taiwan is a prime example of the fact that when China sees an economic uh, economic potential in a country, it seems to be purely economic. So, for example, Honduras and Cuba both maintain a diplomatic ties with Taiwan, yet China participates in economic um, trade, sorry, commercial trade with those, both of those countries. So it seems that Venezuela and Hugo Chavez, it, he sees China as a business partner, um, but of course it is also symbolic in that now it can finally move away from the quote-unquote Yankee Empire, at which he's referred, as he's referred to the United States. Well, let's talk about the Yankee Empire, because in the past, um, depending on your point of view, I know that there are some people who would not admit that the U.S. has a hegemony in the hemisphere. Um, but realistically, most uh, people who study international relations understand that there have been periods of time where the U.S. has worked as an imperialist power in the hemisphere. Um, the Obama administration taking great pains to make sure that we are um, looking much differently to Latin America than we have in the past and talking much more about multilateralism as opposed to uh, one superpower dictating where the hemisphere is going. So in that, is this um, something that we need to be concerned about, um, a change in this hegemonic relationship between the United States and the rest of, of the hemisphere. Is this just a natural transition to this sort of multilateralism that the Obama administration has been talking about? Um, and, or, is this some new sort of economic shift with the Chinese coming in and replacing that hem- hegemonic force? Well, it certainly is an economic shift. Um, China has great demand and great resources to change the economic balance um, that has historic, historically existed, with the U.S. being many countries' main trading partner. Um, and I think international relations, the way that it is today, it is inconsistent with exclusive global eminence. Um, so what I mean by that is that the U.S. can no longer sustain its its role as a main trading partner for everyone. We have the financial recession as one of the main things uh, that's going to limit it now. And China coming in and merging power as one of the BRICS nations um, is directly challenging that this status quo that has been in place for so long. So yes, things are going to start to shift. Um, China is going to take a, a bigger participatory role in what has historically been known as the U.S.'s backyard or Latin America. 
So we have this situation with China now in our backyard, and there are people in the United States who may have some fears related to that. From your point of view and looking at this strictly from an economic standpoint, are those fears justified? Well, I think that the fear that the media creates in the United States isn't exactly on par with China's, even China's willingness, let alone their ability to overtake the United States. You hear speak about China overtaking, watch out for China. China's students are smarter than American students you know, in mathematics. That's a lot of what we're hearing now, is that China's just going to overtake the United States completely. But then you listen to Chinese scholars, and they say there's a huge disparity between the U.S.'s expectations of China and China's resources and their willingness to overtake the U.S. as a global hegemon. That is a costly role, both economically and politically. And right now, China has, a, has not explicitly expressed a desire to overtake the U.S. as a sole global hegemon. Now, I say the sole global hegemon. I'm sure they wouldn't mind having you know just as much power or more, but for an exclusive global hegemon, I don't think that that is in China's future. Just this past week, uh, your organization released another report about uh, China and their growing influence with Brazil. Um, is this example of their work with both Brazil and with Venezuela an example of what we can see them starting to do throughout Latin America? Well, yes. Um, what's happening with Brazil is an interesting situation. Um, while China has been bolstering or helping Latin American countries, Latin American countries bolster their economies, um, it hasn't all been good. It's been sort of a mixed blessing because China has been coming in and exploiting workers. There's been poor labor conditions in place. Um, so what they're doing... Now, when, when you say that, are we talking about Latin America or are we talking about Africa or both? Um, well, I can speak about Latin America. Um, I know that when China comes in and wants to set up, for example, oil exploration fields, they want access to Venezuela's oil exploration fields or any other production that they set up in Latin America. There's been reports that there's been unfair labor practices and things. So what it seems like is starting to happen is that they're really going in in more of an exploitative role in that sense. So there is some danger of that. Another danger is the fact that China is favoring the importing of raw materials as opposed to manufactured goods. Um, manufactured goods only account for about 13% of what Latin American countries export to Asia, which is mainly China. And that, that leaves 87%. Um, to be raw materials. And so what it seems like is happening is mm, they're more exploiting and importing these low-value-added products and only, and and yet China is exporting these high-value-added manufactured goods. So it's sort of an imbalance in that sense, which could turn worse as the years go on. I, I guess I'm going to ask for your opinion at this particular point. There's certainly a history of the U.S. in that imperialistic role of being just as exploitive of resources in Latin America in the past. Um, is there any reason that we can't give the Chinese the same respect in, in how they want to do business? Or perhaps both powers need to pay attention to those workers' rights and, and other things in Latin America? Right. Well, I think 
China, now that it's an emerging power, it's in the spotlight. And Latin American countries and just democracies in general um, need to hold China accountable, both for human rights violations and for these, you know, questionable labor practices. Um, and if it doesn't start with Latin America, where they are currently based, then it's not going to start anywhere. And Latin American countries and the U.S. both need to keep putting pressure on China to hold itself to a higher standard now that it's going to be um, a dominant economic force. Is there any leverage for or any reason that a Venezuela would would ask for that, given the conditions that you've talked about in the relationship that the Chavez administration has with them? Why they would ask for what? For, for that sort of change in, in their operating procedures. Well, right now, Chavez is in the honeymoon period. Uh, he sees $28 billion that is, that is now being invested in his oil fields. Um, so I don't think, unfortunately, I don't know how much of that, uh, the moral part, is going to play into his future relations with China. But right now, it seems that they're in a very good state economically. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Lauren Paverman from the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. We appreciate your point of view. Thank you very much for having me. A restless energy blows across the globe. The desire for human rights. Yet every day, people are tortured, imprisoned, executed, or disappeared. Simply for their identity or their beliefs. That's why Amnesty International speaks out. To protect people's basic human rights. To change the sounds of suffering. To the sounds of freedom. Call 1-800-AMNESTY. It's your human right. 1-800-AMNESTY. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Up next, the second part of our interview with Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists on the issues of free speech in Latin America during a time of elections. We are living in critical uh, times in, in the region. Uh, we got elections, as you, as you know, in, in Guatemala. There's going to be a second round. And uh, the leading candidate is, is uh, you know, a former... Army general who, uh, who you know, uh, his track record for human rights is not the best. Uh, so there's some concerns there about um, uh, how what uh, how this is going to impact society in Guatemala. You know, it's a country that went through civil war for many years. It ended in '96, but they still have some remnant of that violence in the country and and also organized crime, as you know. Uh, the drug goes through all, all the countries in Latin America and impacts how government conducts business and how society interacts. But then you have a more extreme situation, for example, in Venezuela, which is more a government uh, um, a media problem, and 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 you have still uh, you have elections in, in Venezuela coming up uh, as well, uh, and the. President Chavez, as you know, uh, Cesar Chavez is a, is a, is is really a, a, a de facto uh, dictator who has basically announced he he wants to run for re-election again. So he he will be, I think, like his third term. Uh, he and he actually plans to stay. He says, even though, um, as you know, he has uh, has been diagnosed with cancer. He's being treated in Cuba because he doesn't trust any of the doctors in Venezuela. Uh, and he says that that has actually re, uh, re-energized him, and he's going to try to stay in power. That means 
that uh, crackdown on independent media is uh, is on the rise again. Whenever we have elections uh, coming up, uh, um, the governments are going to try to censor dissent. So that's affecting a lot, especially in the rural areas where you have community radios who are basically hosted by the local mayors. Uh, you know, local community have a strong local governments that try to control uh, the media most of the time. Then you go to Ecuador, where you have President Correa, who recently won a, a, a lawsuit against uh, one of the leading papers, one of the most respectable, respected uh, papers in the country, El Universal, and he won a $40 million suit, uh, which is really unthinkable. It's unprecedented in Latin America when actually the governments usually and presidents usually criticize the media publicly, openly, like in Panama, in Colombia, in Argentina, everywhere. And they try sometimes to uh, use indirect means uh, to censor the press. But this way, it was a, a lawsuit basically promoted be, by the president himself, his own lawyer. As a, he says, this has nothing to do with me as president. This is as a person. They defame my, my honor, and now I need to, to claim that honor. And this is how I'm going to do it. So he's doing it as a person, not really as a president. So it's a change of strategy that is is really taking everybody by surprise. It's unprecedented. It's $40 million. Uh, one journalist has been gone to exile. The journalist who wrote a column who basically was telling the president that he was responsible for the uh, upheaval, for the protests that the police made a few months uh, last uh was back in, in last year, and and he, you know, some people die. So the journalist basically it was an op ed piece. No, it's not even a, a story, fact based story. It was a that he was could be uh, brought to justice uh, for human rights uh, atrocities, and you know he took it personally and sued the paper. And the journalist now went in, into exile about uh, three weeks ago. He's in Miami. Uh, and the uh, one of the editors of the paper were also sued, and they are still publishing, but it's, it's extremely dangerous now with that precedent. Now, there are these problems with these honor laws, uh, what might be called in the Spanish term the desacato laws of, the, yes. of Latin America. This is not the only country that's had these oh. issues before, with, and there's a different legal tradition when we talk about libel and when we talk about what journalists are allowed to do in Latin America isn't doesn't that grow yeah, out of this yeah yeah you you have to understand that you know Latin America these are countries who who basically inherited the Spanish you know these are former Spanish colonies so they inherited a lot of the the laws that uh, uh, the Spanish had at the time when there was a respect to the crown to to the authority it was it was uh, um, you know, th these are countries whose constitutions basically tell the people, uh, we, the state, will guarantee you freedom of, the, of expression of the press. But this is the government on their own terms. While in the U.S. you have a different system when you have a, a First Amendment, which is actually the people telling the government, you know, you can, you know, basically... Uh, uh, regulate everything but the press, expression, and these are uh, our 
inalienable rights. So it's the people telling. It's a different uh, way of seeing these rights. And because of that, uh, we have seen the, the product of that in the region when you have this uh, tradition of the respect to the crown, uh, to the kings, uh, which in the modern names are the authorities, the presidents, uh, the ministers, the executive branch. So they feel that they have the right to set the terms by which they protect that freedom. Aren't these the two extremes then? We're talking about the Venezuelan state, very strong state, an autocratic president um, in control, as opposed to the Guatemalan state or the Mexican state, which some would say are weak states now. Some people are even talking about failed states, although I don't think that that actually applies yet in either one of those cases. Um, differences in communication, what does that say for democracy in the region? We've seen for many years democracy has been on the advance in Latin America. What does that say now? Yeah, to be honest, uh, I do think we have advanced, but we have advanced, um, let's put it that way, the columns that sustains democracy has been built, but let's put it that way, with, with very weak materials. So they are extremely weak. And why? It's because you don't have still a rule of law. Uh, the sense of rule of law is is really n even non-existent in many places. Is is still we are still in countries where the powerful and money rules, no justice or common sense. So when you 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 we we did have free election. People were like, well, Latin America is 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 a, is a, has strong democracy. They have elections. But guess what? I mean, getting rid of the military dictators and having free election doesn't necessarily mean you have a strong democratic institutions. And because of that, there is a huge dissolution. And part of the reason why we have governments like the Chavez government in Venezuela, the Correa government in, in, uh, in Ecuador, you got Ortega in Nicaragua, I don't even think it has anything to do with the leftists or socialists. Or, I mean, it really has to do with the weakness of the democratic institutions, lack of rule of law that allows those kind of systems, because they are like a, a, a hybrid. I mean, they are no free market economy, but I don't even consider them a communist <laughs> state either. When so, we talk about Nicaragua, we're talking about a socialist and they, yeah, state. They, and, and they have... They, there are going to be elections coming up in Nicaragua as well, and uh, and I don't. I, it's like a, a, a hybrid that we don't really know where they are going, but it's all because of the uh, lack of uh, rule of law and democratic institutions. And and I've been telling uh, everybody working on international development and nation building that free election was not enough, and reforming political parties was okay, but that's not going to bring. Uh, uh, that's not going to bring justice, that's not going to bring rule of law that is basically important to make sure that we uh, build healthy democracies. So that means that people have the opportunity to, to have justice and also improve their quality of life. So earlier when you were talking about lack of capacity, lack of capacity in Guatemala, lack of capacity in Mexico, 
that's part of what you were talking about, the lack of this institution building that's gone on over the past decade or so. Yeah, and, and the media have tried to um, replace some of that, uh, um, some of that uh, weakness that some of the institutions should have been doing and they are not doing. So the media have kind of comes and tried to do that job, but, but that's not the role of the media either. I mean, we, we are not the judges. We are not the Supreme Court. You know, we don't set the, the policies. So the media get caught in the middle. And I will say that also the media has, I would say, missed some opportunities as well by not having the capacity also to understand and adjust uh, their role in these kind of democracies. Thank you very much, Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists in Washington, D.C., visiting us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Luis. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. And to see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. And if you'd like to write us with your reactions to our program, please send us an email. You can find us at latinpulse.gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, dot gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2011, Las Rocas Productions.